The news spreads, semi-secretly at first. It's whispered around as it was in Mattoon. Someone believes her husband, sister, aunt, or uncle is actually an undetectable imposter. A strange and exciting bit of news to hear. And then it keeps on happening and it spreads and there's a new case or several nearly every day. Hell, the Salem witch hunt, UFOs, they're all a part of this amazing aspect of the human mind. People live lonely lives, a lot of them. These delusions bring attention and concern. Genre, the podcast for pod people. I'm Zach. <laughs> I'm Bob. Today we are reading that was good. Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers. <laughs> hey, before we begin, if you like the show and want to support us, head over to our Patreon where we are publishing deep dive content. For instance, right now we are watching four classic Dracula film adaptations. Is it just me, or do these directors always get the weirdo actors to play Count Drac? Anyways, if you're looking for another way to support, feel free to review and subscribe on your local podcast platform. Anyways, Bob, what do you think of this one? Great book, 1953. We have a science fiction horror. It's quite scary. These pod people are coming down. People are changing. We don't know if our family members are our family members anymore. There's no one we can trust. It's a great book of extreme paranoia, doubt, doubting yourself, doubting others, and not knowing what's real and what's not real. Yeah, I feel like I'm so familiar with this title, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, to where it feels like this this like ingrained trope, almost like mummies and vampires and other kind of like classic horror monsters. But this, this kind of like 1950s small town suburbia, and then the people are not who they seem. I was wondering, have you seen any of the film adaptations? I've seen the first one, 1956, I think. The quite old one came out three years after the book came out. But I don't know anyone else that's seen the movies or read the book. I think you're right. It's a, it's a household name. Body Snatchers. Everyone knows the concept, but few people have seen the media. Have you seen it? No, absolutely not. But I got to say, <laughs> I was so surprised. <laughs> I was, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you're familiar with it, but like, what am I going to do? I'm going to put on Invasion of the Body Snatchers on a Tuesday night? I don't think so. You got four options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was actually texting my friend about reading this book, and she said that Donald Sutherland's 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers is actually a great movie. And this is someone who knows horror, who loves horror, who lives horror, I might even say. And <laughs> so, you know, a recommendation from her, I, I take it seriously. Like when we, we read Dracula, we found that there are many film adaptations. It's a popular, like you've said, everyone knows Dracula, everyone knows The Mummy. There are many movies made again and again. It's a trope that seems endless. People keep mining mining this trope for different films. Body Snatchers, I think, has been made four times. It was made in 56, so three years after, 78 93 and then 2007. And if you watch, I've, I got into a YouTube deep dive, but when you watch these trailers, the fear, the nature of the fear seems to change quite a bit. It's still the same concept. These beings from outer space come down and start taking over humans and you can't recognize who is who, but the fear really does change. The tone changes a lot. Well, I'm curious. So one of the things I've always heard about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that it is a kind of like a metaphor or like, you know, a warning. Sometimes I've even heard people talk about it as, you know, kind of like the classic tale of the dangers of conformity. And I, I didn't quite get that reading this book. Do you feel like the film adaptations live up to that reputation? I was thinking because it's 1953, it's the McCarthy era and it's the Cold War. People are trying to find out who's the communist. And I thought I was going to see that much more heavily in this book because it feels heavy in that 1956 movie. It's definitely not explicit, but it's people shouting at each other 
the whole movie saying, who are you? I don't know who you are. And it feels like the Twilight Zone of the main character. No one will believe him. It's like, you've got to believe me. You've got to believe me. He's not real. He's the rat. The fear there is all about the paranoia of you can't trust people at all. Whereas in 1978, if you watch that trailer, the, the tagline is from deep space, the seed is planted. Terror grows. And the, the trailer is all about body horror. It's these pla- people falling asleep and then plants growing into them. Plants like reaching up into their arm. It's all the stop animation is made around the same time as the thing. So it's that creepy pre-CGI monster. Very body horror, very classic monster movie. 2007, it just becomes a zombie movie. It's a pandemic. Mm. There's a scene where Nicole Kidman's trying to drive away fast in her car and all of these people have jumped under her car right out of a zombie movie. So it's interesting to see this paranoia, I think, is the thing that is the through line. But you see what the fear of that decade is uh, movie to movie. Interesting. So it makes me wonder what the fear of this decade is with this movie. Because so if you think about it, like you have this kind of cosmic horror aspect of these seed pods traveling through the universe, taking over planets and leaving them barren. You know, it's, it's this kind of inevitable wave of cosmic horror. To me, I think the real thing going on here like that's not that's not really the scary part the scary part is that they know that there's something going on they have irrefutable proof really that something strange is going on and one person says should we call the police and our protagonist says no this 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 isn't something that could be handled by the police (laughs) i have this feeling that if we mess this up it's going to mean bad bad things for all of humanity we need to call the president we need to call the military and they try and they they can't get a hold of anyone or like no one there's no there's nothing they can do and for some reason it feels like the horror here isn't so much on a cosmic level it's this kind of like existential threat to the community to the nation to the lifestyle i guess you can see that too when you can't trust society anymore and you can't trust the layers of society when they reach the main character dr miles bennell calls his old buddy in the pentagon and his buddy is just like a low level lieutenant and he calls him and he says, hey, can you're in the Pentagon. Can you something terrible has happened? You got to believe me. I'm going to explain it to you. And then the lieutenant listens to him and he says, yes, I believe you. But just imagine I'm nobody. If I tell the major, he's not going to believe me. And if he does believe me, he's going to tell general. General's not going to believe him. I, I know that the world is ending. I can't help you at all. Nobody's going to believe you. The things that you reach out to, 911, the police, the Pentagon, the military, nobody can help you anymore. There's a scene in the 1993 movie where that same lieutenant tries to call a general. He's trying to get through and he hasn't said who he is. He hasn't said his name. And then the phone operator on the other end says, oh, okay, okay, lieutenant, whatever his name is, I'll patch you right through. And he says, I didn't tell you my name and (laughs) hangs up, throws the phone out the window. (laughs) So they've infiltrated everything. Any any cry for help, they're already there. So that actually makes me really think that maybe we should start watching the body snatcher films and you know maybe that's something we can explore for our patreon kind of movie watching extravaganzas but when you talk about that and you know we see examples of this in the book where the phone line operators have been taken over that's kind of like the above hierarchy of society the upper echelon or at least like the infrastructure being taken over by these these pod people but i think it's also interesting that the effect of these pod people is so economically charged like when they take over a town sidewalks stop getting swept businesses stop being patronized the business owners no longer stock coffee to me 
that's very different than the kind of like body horror of the the pods like ripping apart people or the roots of the plant, you know, taking over someone's central nervous system and eating them from the inside or whatever. It's very grounded. And, you know, I think of like maybe my experience, you know, coming from a small town, you, you kind of go back and you visit it in times of like economic prosperity or maybe like bad, you know, times economically. And you kind of see like, you can kind of just like count like, oh, hey, this time there's a ton of businesses shuttered or hey, this time things are looking pretty good. Things are kind of popping here. There's food trucks, you know? <laughs> and to me, like, I feel like Jack Finney really, he he lit on a certain kind of economic fear. I think that people in a small town feel this like fear that it can all just kind of be washed away if people stop caring and participating like the fragility of the lifestyle i guess we see lots of small town tranquility and neighbors being around neighbors that quickly devolves because people are turning into body snatchers that you can't trust but everyone when they have a problem in this book they just go to their neighbor miles bennell goes to see becky runs into his old high school sweetheart and they become they get back into their romance so it's all about your neighbor and it's on your street the problem is there but you can go across the street to ask for help to ask for but near the end of the book when we start to see like you said the different stores are shuttering their doors because no one's doing anything no one's sweeping the whole town has become dirty miles says quote I don't know how many people still live in the town they were born in these days, but I did. And it's inexpressibly sad to see that place die. Maybe even worse than the death of a friend, because you have other friends to turn to. A friend might die, but then you're still in your town. You still have other people that you know. But now the whole town has been cut off. So it's a feel of total isolation. It's not just paranoia. It's there's nothing. And you're completely isolated. Your town is dead. And you're walking through the dead corpse of your town. Yeah, and it's interesting how like this these body snatchers, they don't really it's not like they come here to kill towns. What they do is they replace people, but they replace people with copies that lack the fundamental characteristics of what makes people human. So you've talked about like turning towards friends, but you know what what Jack Finney talks about is our desire to make things good, to change and improve our surroundings. And when they get there, you know, we get this quote and he says, you can't walk for blocks on an ordinary street inhabited by human beings without seeing evidences of, say, a garage being built, a new cement sidewalk being laid, a yard being spaded, a new window being installed, at least some little signs of the endless urge to change and improve that marks the human race. And I think that if we take a step back and look at our own lives, like, yeah, like if you walk down the street, there people are constantly busy trying to make things better. Maybe a garage being built. I can't remember the last time I've seen that. But, you know, people are always tidying things up. People are always starting new businesses, working on new hobbies, or exploring some interest they have. But what these body snatchers do is they copy us with all of our memories, all of our experiences, but none of that emotion none of the the soul you know it's a copy without a soul they're such an evil parasite after they inhabit everyone they die <laughs> in five years like they've used their host up so the host can no longer function so all of those memories will be gone in five years and then they go off as pods onto another planet that's the sci-fi aspect but it still does feel like they're here to suck us up every last bit of soul, remove it completely, end humanity, and then go and do it to some other planet. Let's, you know, let's talk about this as sci-fi, as genre, because it is sci-fi, it is horror, but it, it also, it feels like there's a lot going on here. To me, this this feels like 
it pulls from its moment. And I think the first real clue we had to that is kind of like this strange dated narration style that our protagonist gives Mm -hmm. us. Let me just read a quote. It's not the most comfortable quote, but I'm going to read it anyways. He says, I don't claim a lot of experience with crying women, but in stories I read, the man always holds the woman close and lets her cry. And it always turns out to have been the wise, understanding thing to do. I've never heard of a single authenticated case where the wise, understanding thing was to distract her with card tricks or tickling her feet. So I was wise and understanding. I held Becky close and let her cry because I didn't know what else to do or say. It's almost like a parody of this kind of like 1950s <laughs> male experience where like, oh, woman crying, don't know what to do. I, I don't know. It, it's it's a funny perspective to me. It's like, hmm. I, I don't know. I'm not here to be like, oh, like it's, you know, dated, wrong, sexist, whatever, you know, perspective. I just, I just think that I don't think I've seen a narrator tell the story in quite this way <laughs> in anything well, I, I would agree you know, with- written recently. <laughs> When I was reading it, I felt like the narrator is a sci-fi narrator. The character is quite rational, maybe not always the smartest, but very rational, a lot like the characters in Dracula who never make a mistake. This character is always making the right decisions, and it doesn't use that horror trope of worrying about, oh, there's no dramatic irony. He has the kind of feeling of being a comic book character, a very flat kind of, oh, shucks kind of guy. He is never a source of fear. Whereas in, I think, many modern horrors, the main character or the narrator could be a source of fear. They might make a big mistake that is just as horrible as what the monster is doing. Whereas this guy is just trying to report to us, the reader, what's happening about this weird sci-fi thing that happens to be horrifying. He's here to tell us the facts. He's a, he's a doctor. Yeah. You know, he's a, just he's the a facts. trusted... Just the facts, please. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of like a character from Archie Comics. I also like how, as a doctor, he reflects the time, perhaps, or maybe just how the author is feeling. He has this like enmity towards psychiatrists. So they have this psychiatrist friend, Dr. Manfred Kaufman. Manny, he's always razzing him. He's always razzing him up. <laughs> like he'll call him at like 530 in the morning and, you know, the, the psychiatrist will pick up and he'll say, hello, Manny. And he'll say, yeah. And he'll say, listen, did I wake you up? And it says that brought him to life, cursing like a wild man. And it's like, he's not directly, you know, trash talking psychiatrist, but I get the feeling just the way this character is portrayed as, you know, you have the the rational doctor who sees things as they are. And then you have the psychiatrist who functions in this story to kind of like talk them off the ledge to be like, no, no, there couldn't be space monsters. You know, of course, it turns out the psychiatrist was you know, a pod person the entire time and was just trying to deceive them through their quack psychiatry verbal tricks. I think it's interesting. It's like a cool snapshot of the time. These three main characters who are doctors, we have Miles Bennell, who is the main character and the physical doctor, you know, an MD. He's very trustworthy. He solves a lot of these problems. Then we have Manny, who is faking it. He's body snatcher the whole time. He's a psychologist. We can't trust him. Benell doesn't seem to trust him anyway. Then we have Professor Budlong, who also turns into a body snatcher earlier than we expected. And we have these two who are lying to us the whole time. And only the one, the regular MD, who is telling us the truth. The psychologist uses great psychology to calm these characters down and convince them of a lie. And it's the exact same thing that Professor Budlong does later using theories saying, quote, whatever you feel you may have observed, doctor, you're on the wrong track. I know myself how easy it is at times to be carried away by a theory, but you're a doctor. And when you think about it, you'll know I'm right. Manny says almost the exact same thing. So we have the professor and the psychologist telling the regular guy, the MD, you're crazy. There's nothing going on. Echoes of this for sure 
are in films like John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, like if you like the kind of relationship dynamic that plays out in The Thing where people are on the Antarctic base and no one trusts each other, no one knows who the monster is, but everyone is suspicious and reading into everyone else's words. I feel like this is really, if not the source, at least in in an earlier point in the chain of influence here. It's good. There's an introduction to this book where Stephen King says that this book brought the horror genre away from this kind of HP Lovecraft worship, you know, moving away from the kind of like gothic and dark and really monstrous into a kind of like suburban American town. You know, part of that movement isn't just setting. It's moving from monsters that are visibly monstrous to monsters that look just like you and me. The opening of this book is almost just like the opening of Blue Velvet, the David Lynch movie. There's an old guy out on the lawn looking at his lawn. He's going to water it when Uncle Ira, he's the first character that we're introduced to that might have changed. And he's just doing his thing. He's doing his regular thing that he does every day, but there's something wrong with his expression. And no one's going to believe his niece that he's changed. I really like this horror about not knowing who is the bad guy. And it could be your neighbor. It could be your brother. Someone's changing around you. And I really loved the description of the these bodies as they change. I think that was a very interesting element of horror in this. And we're given a few different metaphors to explain what they look like. The body snatcher body, as it forms, it's kind of like an unused body. So it doesn't have all of the wrinkles yet. It takes a long time for it to look exactly perfect. One of Benel's friends, Jack Benichek, says, it's like the process of making a coin. It's stamped one time, before it's stamped a second time for all of the details. First, you give it the outline, the impression, then you stamp it again for the details. And that's what these bodies that lay in different parts of these houses look like. They're almost like mannequins. You take a long time to come to life. Iconic moment, I thought, in this was when, you know, they find this body and they they give it a fingerprint test and there's no fingerprints. They're just black circles, you know? <laughs> I love yeah. that. But, but not only that, this haunting image and idea that there's just something hiding just outside of your normal day-to-day path. I think of those studies that they did in the 70s where they kind of like tracked people's day-to-day movements across the year and found that most people walk in the same circles every day of their lives, only like venturing outside of those routine circles through the city once every two or three weeks. You've, you've probably seen this, but this idea that, you know, I'm in my home and I can clearly imagine like, okay, I walk through the door. Usually maybe I go to the kitchen, get myself a drink. Then I sit on the couch and then I go upstairs to my office. You know, that's kind of my path. But what if one day I took a detour and went down to the basement and decided I wanted to sweep under the stairs? Oh my God, there's a body down there. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know what I mean? Like this idea that there's just this unspeakable horror just hiding inside of our closets, but we never look inside of our closets, so we don't know that it's there waiting for us, developing, growing, and ultimately is going to replace us. They first see these bodies and they're thinking, what are these things before they have that final stamp, before they've developed enough where they are carbon copies? They look faceless. Ben- Benel's friend, Jack Belichick, sees this one and finally realizes, well, I'm about f- I'm about 5'9". That, that body's about 5'9". It weighs maybe, looks like it weighs 135 pounds. Oh my God. I weigh 135 pounds, and the next day it's got the exact same face. Your days are numbered. 
The way these bodies form really reminds me of one of my favorite tropes that we've talked about and pointed out again and again on this podcast of authors including a kind of countdown. So like James Bond has got to get his hands untied and kill the bad guy and and disengage the rocket launcher before a nuclear missile launches and blows up this kind of like hmm. 10, 9, 8. <laughs> that really adds this really frantic pace to books and gives you something to pay attention to and to kind of glom onto emotionally. With this book, what I love is that as a reader, we find these bodies and we know that they're just going to start to look more and more like our protagonists, but we don't get a countdown. We get physical descriptions of how they're they're progressing. Oh, this one's about 140 pounds and five foot nine. Hey, that's that's my weight and height. We know that for every smooth, characterless facial feature or lack of fingerprints, it's only a matter of time before they turn into actual fingerprints and you know clearly defined faces. But we don't have that countdown. So, like as soon as we see these bodies, as the reader, we're like, "Hey, man, you gotta, you gotta kill that thing. You gotta burn that quick." You know what I mean? Because you don't know how long it's going to take, and that is part of the horror. Taking Benzedrine to stay up too is part of that that countdown because if you fall asleep, you're you're cooked. So there's there's something you can't do and you want to do it desperately. You want to go to sleep, but if you do, you and all of your friends are dead. Very what nightmare on Elm Street. Very nightmare. Oh yeah, don't dream. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in that in that movie, you know, the kids are all, you know, chugging coffee and taking caffeine pills or whatever that that might be a feature of the the remake from like the mid 2000s but you know they're doing everything they can to stay awake but ultimately it's kind of a lost cause because you can't stay awake your experience of life just degrades more and more so you know you're kind of running up against a deadline you just don't know when you're going to hit it this book reminded me in some ways a lot of i am legend which we read it's a vampire book that is more like a zombie book but the, the connection that i see is in when people change what things that they want to say to you that they couldn't in polite society that now they are a creature that is no longer human that they can say to you because in i am legend it's all of these people outside his house who he knows who still remember him who are kind of the same people but they're vampires now and they just want to suck his blood so it's all of these people like trying to lure him out some of them are sexy vampires some of them or his neighbor telling him to get back in the car because they're going to do their regular commute. In this, there's one guy who's a, a shoe shiner, and our narrator, Miles, tells us about, oh, he was really a character. He's a lovable guy, and he'd always talk to you about your shoe and call you captain or call you lieutenant or call you corporal. Quote, but Billy continued, and never before in my life had I heard such ugly, bitter, and vicious contempt in a voice. Contempt for the people taken in by his daily antics, but even more for himself, the man who supplied the servility they bought from him. I think that what he was describing there was an experience. So it's like a metaphor. The guy wasn't changed by body snatchers. The guy had gone through life pretending to be everyone's buddy buddy. When the protagonist goes to a different part of town, he overhears him and he realizes that this guy hates everyone and that he's mocking them when he's in his own part of town. And he's using that example to highlight how when they're standing outside of the window listening to their family, their family does all the same, you know, howdy doody neighbor, but they do it in this mocking voice that shows their contempt for them. Another fear that people would have reading this book is that everything seems fine when you talk to the people you trust, but then really it turns out they're mocking you. Well, I don't know. For me, I think of people in my own life who are like, 
you know, always joking around, always kidding. You know, you know, I, I travel a bit for work and, you know, you see people and they always have nicknames for you. Hey, how's it? You know, but it's like, you can't, you can't mistake personability for true goodness or, you know, affability for actual friendship. But at the same time, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that is an act that people choose to put on. It's a mask, an affability mask that people choose. Like, like, hey, I'm going to give you a nickname. Hey, I'm going to always razz you a little bit, poke you in the sides. I think that there's a fear that Jack Finney is playing on, that the people around us are just performing. And, and the horror is in recognizing that someone who you think you know in a certain way is just putting on an act just for you. So we get the example of when they're all standing outside of the window, overhearing Becky's family talk about how the two of them are back in town. And we get a repeat, we get a repetition of a conversation that happened earlier in the week. Uncle Ira says, how's business, Miles? Kill many today? And for the first time in years, I heard in another voice the shocking mockery I had heard in the shoeshine guy's voice. The short hairs of my neck actually stirred and prickled. Bag the limit, Uncle Ira went on, repeating my reply to him of a week before, ages before, out on the front lawn of his home, and his voice parodied mine with the pitiless sarcasm of one child taunting another. So it's this idea that you think you're having kind of authentic interactions with other people, but then later they're all making fun of you. They're all laughing at you. They're all putting on your voice and kind of parroting you. That's fear. I think too, there is the kind of horror going on here too, where there's actions, maybe not just one individual, but a group, things that look normal and look good. But when you look closely, they're very bad. When they are escaping the town, they're trying to get out away from these body snatchers. They think, okay, our our county, Marin County is done for. We got to get out of here. That's the main thing. So they're trying to get out of the city and they go in to the city and they see this large crowd of people and they start to think, okay, that's probably not good. But then they're putting all of these special badges on for for like a parade some sort of event and they think oh well maybe that's all right but then they're starting to switch the badges change them to a different color and it seems to be all signaling something they see these cars going towards a checkpoint that's not normal and then they see that these these cars have things in the back then all these people are coming to help each other it's a very small town almost like a farmer's market coming together or a parade everyone's cheery everyone's helping each other and they get close they see that what they're Getting out of all of these trucks are these seed pods, the body snatcher pods. You think the people around you are always your friend, they're buddy buddy, but they're lying behind your back. The other fear is people in general do good things. When they get together, they're trying to do good things, but really underneath they're doing terrible things. It was also a moment, I think, of kind of changing of the mode of the horror. Like we talked about this in the last episode with uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Lot 249 in that book. You know, they have a mummy, a living mummy, and the mummy is just kind of like, you know, classic mummy move, walking after him like a zombie, arms outstretched. But then, you know, he starts to run. And instead of outrunning the mummy, the mummy then kind of gets on all fours and runs at him like a dog runs. And it's that horror of you think you know the villain, but then the villain changes their mode. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, this thing isn't just walking corpse, it's a beast. So with this, I feel like the change of mode that happens here is you you think that the body snatchers are a kind of like plant, you know, like think of like blowing a dandelion, you know, you go, you, you blow it and, and make a wish and the dandelion seed pods scatter into the wind. And you know that in the neighborhood now there will, you know, a few of them will take and you'll have more dandelions in the future. 
So you kind of view these seed pods as kind of like randomly affecting people. This is the first case where it feels like you have a pod factory. You have people getting called forth and says, okay, who has family over in this county? Who has family in that county? And then they send them away with pickup trucks filled with pods. You know, it, it feels like there's this kind of cold logic and rationality at that point to where I think that as a reader, I, I felt like I had been underestimating the body snatchers up until that point. And that was when I was like, oh, you know, they're, they're screwed. There's no way out of this if this is how it's going to be. But to kind of switch streams a little bit, have you read any other books that really capture that feeling of paranoia that this book has? No, the only thing I could think of is Twilight Zone episodes. Definitely. This does feel like a long episode of the Twilight Zone in, in the best possible way. In terms of literature, though, I, I can't think of anything that really captures how it feels to be utterly convinced of something that either isn't there or that no one else can see. Like there's this moment where the character Wilma, you know, she knows that her uncle Ira is different. She says, every little move, everything about him is exactly like Ira's. Her face still red cheeked and round as circles, but now lined with anxiety. Wilma staring at me, eyes intense. I've been waiting for today, she whispered, waiting till he'd get his hair cut. And he finally did. Again, she leaned towards me, eyes big, her voice, a hissing whisper. There's a little scar on the back of Ira's neck. He had a boil there once, and your father lanced it. You can't see the scar, she whispered, when he needs a haircut. But when his neck is shaved, you can. Well, today, I've been waiting for this. Today, he got a haircut. I sat forward, suddenly excited. And the scar's gone? No, she said, almost indignantly, eyes flashing. It's there, the scar, exactly like Uncle Ira's. So, like, you get this fake out of, like, you expect the telltale sign to be a missing scar. But despite the fact that the scar is still there, she's utterly convinced that he's, he's been replaced. Yes. Yeah, a total impossibility. No matter who you tell, they're not going to believe you because that would be proof. You know, oh, he's an imposter. He has one scar that's different. It's a long lost missing twin. There's a reasonable, rational explanation. But in this, if you just keep saying that there's, there's something different that I can't explain, they're going to think you're crazy. So no matter what you say, no one will believe you. You're your only teammate. And until it happens to someone else, then they'll believe you. Yeah. Well, should we wrap it up? As we read other horror books, I'm interested to see what is a positive ending, what's a happy ending, what, what's optimistic and what's pessimistic. Dracula, the good guys win. In this, the good guys win. Only in the last few paragraphs, the good guys win. It seems like the body snatchers have totally won. Like the scene that we talked about a minute ago where all of the cars are showing up and people are taking the pods off of them. Eventually, our two main characters, Becky and Miles, go and escape so far that they end up in this field that is an entire farm of these pods growing. But they light them on fire. Great. They're going to win. The fire goes out and they're screwed. Then all of this, these body snatchers in a crowd come, but it turns out it's not the body snatchers. It's people everywhere are starting to kill these pods. And the book ends with, yes, humanity is finding ways to fight back all over the world and the body snatchers just aren't going to win but all of the other movies that have been made since then the body snatchers win and you always are led to think oh the humans are about to win and then you have a little bit of proof that the last person saving the main character is already a body snatcher and then the movie ends so our book's going to be more optimistic and movies more pessimistic well until next time talk to you later bob talk to you later zach